Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 130. This interview is with the inimitable Scott Monty, formerly head of social media at the Ford Motor Company, where he was instrumental in driving a successful digital strategy under Alan Mulally's reign. He recently joined the premier agency Shift Communications. Scott has been ranked by The Economist as one of the top five social business leaders and by Forbes as one of the top ten influencers on social media. Experienced in execution and generous in spirit, you should definitely enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue. Today, special guest. I, know I kind of almost feel like your family, but that's of course not true, Scott. So um, I'd love you to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, what you do, as our friend Mitch Dole says. And what is your mindset, Scott? Great. Well, Minter, thanks for having me on. It's uh, nice to get connected. I mean, we've known each other online for seemingly ever. That's true. Um, my name is Scott Monty. I am the Executive Vice President of Strategy for Shift Communications, a progressive PR and social media firm. Uh, I've been with Shift a little over six months now after having left my role at Ford Motor Company, where I was the global head of social media and digital communications for the company for six years. Mm. And um, my mindset is really all about um, innovation and coming up with strategically uh, viable ways to try new things and uh, get inside the mindset of the consumer. I think one of the things that marketers, communicators are all too often concentrating on is themselves and their own products and their own issues without really taking a step away to think about, well, how does this fit? into the complex life of the consumer. And um, it, it sounds fairly simplistic, and it is, but I think we end up getting wrapped up in too many of the complexities uh, oftentimes. Mm, no doubt. So, Scott, you uh, you have uh, had this beautiful uh, activity at Ford. A lot of choices uh, in front of you, I'm going to guess. What made you choose Shift? Well, uh, yeah, a lot of choices, uh, and there still are a lot of choices, quite frankly. Um, and I think one of the things that uh, appealed to me about Shift was, again, the opportunity to build something. And when I first went to Ford, a lot of people scratched their heads and they said, well, why, why didn't you go to Toyota? Why didn't you go to you know, a winning automaker? And my response was, look, I don't want to simply ride coattails or maintain and Ford uh, had a comeback story in the making and was in the process of kind of writing its own ticket. And I'd much rather be part of uh, the building and establishing of something rather than uh, the continuance. And when it comes to shift, uh, same kind of thing applies. Uh, you know, it's a, a good-sized company, about $18 million in revenue, 150 people or so across Austin, Boston, New York, and San Francisco. But the thing is, they gave me the opportunity to remain here in Michigan. I don't have to uproot my family. I don't have to 
make a major adjustment in the cost of living. And I get to work with some amazing brands and some really smart team members. And one of the, one of the team members that really, um, helped me make up my mind was Christopher Penn. Mm-hmm, sure. Uh, I've known Chris Penn for a long time and he's, there's no other way to describe it. He is a genius uh, at what he does. And this notion of moving PR, especially PR into more of an analytical mindset was really appealing to me because mm-hmm. a lot of communicators, they, they communicate their results in terms of headlines and clip sheets uh, there really is no accountability there. Or traditionally, has been no accountability in terms of uh, moving the needle on consumers. And one of the things that we're working on at Shift is how to come up with data-driven storytelling. You know, how to use data to help us better tell our story, to see where things are picking up, to understand how people are responding to it, build that into uh, you know future iterations of our communications, and to help the businesses make better decisions based on the insights that we share. And so for the company, do you, I mean, let's say in terms of lead generation and incoming um, as opposed to out, outbound, um, do you, what system do you have? Do you, I mean, are you imp- uh, applying that for you guys as well as the kind of stuff you're bringing to companies? Oh, you better believe it. I mean, if we don't eat our own dog food, then there's really no sense in offering these solutions up for uh, our clients. As you can imagine, there's a lot of uh, back-end analysis on our uh, web properties, uh, a pretty robust email database. We're always experimenting with combining uh, the two with social platforms. So, you know, custom audiences on Facebook and, uh, you know, sponsored ads on Twitter and LinkedIn and whatnot, and then tiering them and versioning our content based on who's seeing it. Uh, and, and all of that stuff falls into our, um, our, our CRM system to help uh, generate new leads. So, Scott, the reason why I wanted to go into that part of the question was when a company is, you know, so your clients or others are, are looking at this digital question, they, they say, well, uh, I, oh, there's this guy called Scott Monty. We could try hiring him. Oh, but wait, well, wait a second. Oh no, he's got his personal brand. He's going to be, you know, big ego head. Um, he's got his own agenda, and all these kind of questions come up. And and yet, I think, I mean, personally, you're exactly the right type of people that that or person that a brand and a company should be hiring. What, where do you go with that conversation? Are you, are you able to get that into their heads that they should be welcoming people who have their own personal brand, welcoming people that have a massive presence online? Well, to tell you the truth, Mentor, I've really never focused on my personal brand. I've just been myself, <laughs> and I've just told stories about situations I'm in, whether it's at Ford or whether it's at Shift or what have you. Um, you know, I think other people are, are the ones who focus on the personal brand. I think it's a mistake, quite frankly, because people are interested in other people, first of all. You know, that's how we do business. It's, mm-hmm. And I don't care whether you're B2C, B2B. It's people dealing with other people. That's how the world works. Um, and, and people are interested in stories. Now, this is a uniquely human trait mm-hmm. of being able to tell and listen to stories. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing it for tens of thousands of years. Right. You know, think about 
years ago, actually, in France, the cave paintings. That was a way of telling stories when we could only communicate visually. And the, uh, you know, the epic progress of uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, as those were originally handed down as part of the oral tradition. So this is part of who we are as a species. Oh, I and Sorry. frankly, if, if that kind of conversation ever to work, were ever to come up with clients, I just fall back on my experience having worked at a major brand and having made major accomplishments. I think right. that's what I have to fall back on, certainly. That's for sure. I mean, I think there's no doubt that, you know, you know, you have provable experience and performance and results. At the same time, um, whether it's a whether you want it or not, you do have a personal brand. It is it's a brand that's out there. Anyway, it's also a presence that's out there. And and what I what I I, I think about is the ability for companies to accept individuals and their personalities, their ability to listen, to tell stories, and to communicate is 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 necessary in companies. Yeah, well, you know, I think most companies have uh, a a public face to them, and that's usually their CEO, who is the chief spokesperson. And if it's okay for the CEO to do it, who, you know, these days lasts maybe five years if you're lucky, mm. and or you know, CMOs whose tenure is even shorter. I've heard that. I was listening to someone. I think it was Mitch talking about the fact that they're they're just beginning to extend that they're seeing I've seen that yeah yeah it used to be like 18 months or yeah, right. 20 27 months and I think it's doubled in the yeah. last couple of years so that's encouraging it is actually. um and, and and I think frankly I think that links to uh two things one I think it links to the CMO being held more accountable in terms of numbers, and particularly through the digital space uh -huh. where they can prove it out. Right. And they're being given a little bit of latitude in terms of building out the systems to be able to measure that. And secondarily, I think because the CMO is becoming in some ways more technologically savvy than the CIO. Uh, so is being given, you know, broader experience or, or broader uh, responsibilities. And again, with that comes the, the notion that you need to give somebody enough ramp-up time to actually prove themselves. So, you know, you've got C-level executives who already are the face of your brand. Well, what's wrong with having other employees who are the face of the brand as well? Right. I mean, they have their own networks. They have their own spheres of influence. And if you think you have an employee who is going to outshine your brand, well, then, frankly, you have a lot of work to do on your brand. <laughs> For sure. So I, you know, I, I um, let's go, let's go back to the, the, your, your experience at Ford, Scott, if we could. And, and I'm thinking about you, you arrive, you're recruited into this enormous organization that's in sort of massive turbulence, as I imagine at the beginning of it six years ago. What was, um, and, and you come in there and you, you say, well, there's this thing called, you know, digital, and not me, of course, they knew about it, but, you know, you're going in there and bringing in a whole new impetus to their digital agenda. How would you describe, I mean, I don't want to obviously, you know, poo-poo what they were, had been doing before, but what would you describe? Would you think that there was a light bulb moment as, as you brought it in, or was it just a, a slow grind? Or how, did, how would you describe how this, the, the success of Ford's digital presence uh, came around? Well, I think, it was, uh, I think it was a slow grind with moments of clarity along the way. 
Um, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people really understood the full uh, potential impact uh, in the early days. And we started out simply by um, expanding the number of um, media and influencers that we brought to uh, a, a um, traditional uh, model year event on the test track. Mm -hmm. Something like 200 business and automotive writers. Well, we, we brought in 10 bloggers of various stripes. Uh, and then that grew to, you know, maybe 25 bloggers at the auto show. And then, uh, you know, every six months or so, we do a major event like this and expand the number of digital influencers that would be there. And pretty soon we were up to about 200 per uh, event. So that was very clear that they, uh, they saw and understood the impact. The other thing, and two other things, I think. One is that we mounted the uh, Fiesta movement, which was really something jointly done between the marketing team and the communications team, mm -hmm. where we gave the, uh, this European-styled Fiesta <laughs> to 100 influencers in the U.S. a year before the car was actually due to hit the shores. Right, so seeding it. Yeah, completely exclusive and completely driven via social channels. Uh, so very trackable. And any of the impact that was felt was felt because specifically of those influencers and their social channels. Mm -hmm. And the notion that we could let other people do the talking for us uh, was really given a lot of legs uh, in that execution. Mm. And I'd say the, the other one uh, is in terms of executive involvement – you know, a lot of the executives kind of winked and nodded at social and, you know, oh, that's cute, you know. But when I sat down with our CEO, Alan Mullally, and got him to take questions from consumers on Twitter, just a simple Q&A through the Ford corporate handle, mm -hmm. he was blown away by the ability to actually interact with so many customers so directly in such a, an efficient uh, use of his time and really understood the power of conversational marketing at that point. And so when you, when you, do, when you did that session with um, Alan Mulally, how much briefing and prepping did you feel you had or had to go into it to make it successful? I mean, you had to presumably explain some hashtags and all these Good stuff, or did he already know about that? And then to what extent did you feel like you had to prepare material? Was it sort of a, a, a almost a war war room kind of feeling, or how did it go around? Not at all. There's, it's actually a, a one-two punch. Uh, <laughs> the first time I, I collared him to do this, it was at a media event. He was coming out of a scrum while the reporters were hounding him. And I turned to his uh, communications director, and I said, and because I had been kind of live tweeting, oh, you know, OMG, Alan Mulally and Bill Ford just walked into the room. And my followers said, well, can we ask them some questions? I said, well, let me find out. So I asked Alan's communications director, do you think he'd be willing to take some questions on Twitter? And she said, why don't you just ask him? So he comes out of the scrum and I go up to him and I said, hey, Alan. And, you know, he knew me by name and certainly by sight. Um, Alan, would you be willing to take some questions on Twitter? And he goes, absolutely. <laughs> What's Twitter? <laughs> so the fact that he didn't even know what the platform was, right, right. it didn't even matter yeah. because he's got the attitude and the curiosity, the enthusiasm. He wants to engage with people, uh -huh. right? 
So we, uh, we went through that, uh, you know, we got maybe about five questions out of him or, or answers out of him to the, to the questions. Right. And, um, the final question that he answered was a real eye opener for me. You know, uh, this is a guy who, you know, I had been in Detroit all of five months at the time. Uh-huh. Had not been part of the auto industry. Um, the industry was getting raked over the coals with uh, the bailout hearings, sure. where Ford had to show up. We didn't take part in. Wait, because you, you, Ford didn't take any. Uh, we didn't take the money, no, but we yeah. were there to support the industry. Right. So it was a really dark and difficult time, and a lot of people were looking down their noses at U.S. automakers. And the the question that was put to Alan was, Alan, what kind of car do you drive? And I turned to his director and I said, can, can he answer this? I mean, is this a security concern for oh, Alan? Gosh. Uh-huh. And she said, watch this. <laughs> okay. Alan, what kind of car do you drive? He grabs me by the forearm and he, go, and, and he kind of shakes it in, in rhythm with how he's talking. He goes, I drive a different car every day. And I said, oh, that's so cool. You drive our whole lineup. And he squeezes even harder. He said, no. I drive the competition's vehicles. Oh, wow. And I thought, whoa, right there for me, I understood that this is a guy who understands so much more about the industry, understands strategy, understands the consumer mindset. He wants to be the best in the business. And the only way to do that is to understand where your competition is, not where your own product is. So we wrapped that up, and that was great. And about three months later, I asked if he'd like to do that again, but in a more formal setting. Mm-hmm. Sure. Why don't you come on upstairs? So I, I climbed the two flights of stairs to his office, and it was just me and him and his communications director again in the office. And I had the foresight to bring a video camera with me. Oh, good. And we had let the community know that we were going to be doing this. Right. So you're, you're seeding them. You're, you're yeah. prepping them up. Yeah. Exactly. Half an hour, 45 minutes with Alan Mulally exclusively. Mm-hmm. And we sat down and I was in front of the laptop and he was seated to my left. And the questions just came right in and he answered them. You know, just, and, and the reason I wanted the video camera there is because I wanted people to see the sincerity mm-hmm. and the, the unvarnished, uh, transparent way that he reacted to stuff and answered questions. And you can find it on, on YouTube. Now just you know, go onto YouTube and search for Alan Mullally Twitter. Mm, I'll put it on. And it's channels. about five minutes worth of material. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we truncated it. And you, get, you really get a sense of the man mm-hmm. at that point. And again, his eyes were truly open to the power of connecting with the consumer at that point. So it's obvious that um, he has a, an attitude, a, a desire, sort of energy, a knowledge, of course, as well. When, when you are, you know, if either thinking back to your four days, but also going in your new, in your new role uh, at Shift, to what extent do you believe the CEO and or his or her full team should actually be on social media themselves? You know, I think it depends. Uh, you know, it's a big commitment to be able to, um, you know, interact with consumers day in and day out. And it's not one of these things where you can decide to do it one day and not right. the next day. Yeah. We've got a client right now, uh, the CEO of uh, T-Mobile, 
John Ledger. And the guy is relentless. And he's relentless against the competition. He's relentless in promoting the T-Mobile brand. And he's relentless in his desire to make a better experience for consumers. And it shows. And here's a guy who, you know, you talk about personal brands. You know, he's kind of built his, his brand on brashness, on in-your-face, on and, and on his love of things like technology and music mm-hmm. and video games and running. You know, he's a 360-degree individual that people love interacting with because he's a real human being, right? And it shows. And he's admitted, this is not for the faint of heart. Mm-hmm. This is not for every executive. You know, you can't expect everyone to elicit this kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. Well, so, I mean, I, I get that. So where I'm thinking about, when you're in a, when you're in a, a company – there are there are three things I think about, and and uh, the first is what does the brand stand for, and how easy is it to articulate a social presence, or you know using digital anyway, uh, of a brand that doesn't have a higher purpose. It's sort of just it sounds it's you know it's a brand that's sort of just about making shareholders money, and there are lots of brands and companies that run like that. The mm-hmm. second area is to what extent the CEO lives and breathes the brand. Because if the CEO doesn't, well, maybe that's okay. I have a sparring partner called so-and-so, and that person's the face of the brand. But in the absence of that, then going back to the point we were talking about before, they are, yes, supposed to be the face of the brand. But then how do you, how do you activate that? You know, listen, I need, to more, I need more fans on Facebook. I need more engagement. I want more bloggers. Okay, but A, there's the brand question, and B, there's the profile of personality and the leadership component leading the way. I think it's a, it's, it's a really good point you raised, Mentor. And there, there needs to be consistency there. Otherwise, and we've seen it before, consumers are just going to ferret it out. And it's going to be completely uh, inauthentic and unbelievable to them if there's not a match. When I was first joining Shift and I heard that the, the agency was pitching T-Mobile, and was pitching T-Mobile for, in part, CEO communications. Hmm. I, I looked up John Ledger <laughs> on Twitter, and I go, oh, my God, this guy is a loose cannon. You know, I came from uh, you know, Ford with a, a pedigree of we don't talk about the competition. Right. We focus on ourselves and what we're accomplishing in our plan. Yeah. And – if you talk about the competition, you certainly don't trash talk the competition. Right. So was, mm-hmm. Right. And I was horrified to see <laughs> what Ledger was doing. And my first thought was, my God, this guy's a loose cannon. We have mm-hmm. to rein him in. We have to figure out how to control the message more. Mm-hmm. But in spending time with the brand mm-hmm. and in spending time with him, I realized, you know what? It's a perfect alignment because T-Mobile's whole – mantra right now is to completely upend the wireless industry. It's to, to go from number four to number three mm-hmm. at this point, overtake Sprint, and it's to give customers what they want. You know, just yesterday, they announced uh, a smartphone equality program where doesn't matter if you're a prepaid or a postpaid customer, if you pay your bill on time 12 months in a row, you will be in good standing with T-Mobile. Because the big dirty secret of the industry is all of these offers that they put out, most U.S. consumers 
a good 50 to 54 percent are not financially qualified for them. Mm-hmm. And T-Mobile wants to end that because they realize how essential having a phone is, and, and certainly these days more and more, having a smartphone is. And they want to make that available to more people and to make it affordable and accessible. And, you know, here's John out there personally leading the crusade to change the industry. And it's very, very effective. Yes, yeah, so this is the challenger mentality in France. In the same space, there's this company called Free, run by a guy called Xavier Niel. And he, so by the name Free, you can imagine that's quite uh, provocative. And he's yeah. been doing the same thing. And uh, so then the funny thing is, you, you get a challenger mentality, you bring personality, you bring full essence, you have authenticity, you're driving it out there, and all of a sudden you become the leader. <laughs> I hope, anyway, and I mean that for you, anyway, with with T-Mobile, yeah. and then then the challenge, of course, then is well replacement of that personality, and making sure that becomes an uh, a, tr- a tricky beast to do, and then all of a sudden you're no longer the challenge, you're the number one, and then then that that leads you to well, what is market leader presentation? Because usually in classic books, you don't as the number one want to trash the industry or your partners because. You, you'll only grow if the entire industry grows. That's according to the rules of marketing. Thoughts? Yeah, I think um, there may be some truth in that. But people love theater. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they love competition. They love theater. And, and certainly they love to hear from people that can get their, uh, their, their, their blood boiling. Yeah, the juice is going. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and... I, and Look at look at Steve Jobs. You know, you want to take one of the biggest personal brands of uh, the last thirty years no or so. Doubt. Here's a guy who was so inextricably wrapped up with Apple that the stock price would rise and fall based on rumors of his health. Yeah, and we we all know how that that ended. But there was obviously great concern about tying a personal brand to the future of. Uh, that particular company. Mm -hmm. And look, Tim Cook has turned out to be a very capable and able CEO who is taking Apple um, to the the, the next phase of its development. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, there are different types of leaders that are needed by brands at certain points in their evolution. You know, the founder CEO is Mm -hmm. very, very different from a growth CEO Mm -hmm. who is, uh, still in in turn different from um you know an industry maintainer or uh, or a sunsetter <laughs> what's that or the sunsetter the one taking you well, down and selling yeah, it off and, that happens too right yeah. but different personalities are required for the the life cycle of a brand um and and you know whether an entire industry is tanking uh, or whether they're beating a competitor uh, certain folks are needed at a certain time now if T-Mobile is successful in completely changing the industry and completely besting its competition, well, then John's work will have been done. Exactly. And it'll be time for a different uh, leader. So, Scott, we've been talking just now about the this real-time question and answers you did with Malali, and the there's this powerful possibility of social as a communication tool. We're driving it out there. One of the things that I, I get... My head. I want to get my head around with you, is the importance of internal communications as a um, as a facilitator of success for a social strategy. 
What's your viewpoint on that? Well, I think internal communications has to be, again, completely consistent with what you're doing externally. And, and frankly, your employees are your first wave of advocates or should be your first wave of advocates. You, you would think that they, uh, they care about the brand and certainly care enough to see it succeed because usually their livelihood is tied to it. Uh, um, but understanding that, you know, not everyone uh, as an employee is required to do this kind of thing mm-hmm. and uh, not everyone has the capability. But at the very least, being transparent and um, immediate with your employee base about, you know, what the brand's plans are, what your what news you're making. You know, when I was at Ford, the commitment was always to let employees hear it first from the brand. They didn't want employees necessarily to pick up a newspaper or uh, open a web page and get major news about the company from a third party. And, and that commitment to informing employees first, I think, led to greater loyalty from employees who are less likely to gossip and less likely to speculate, which in turn could lead to gossip and speculation in the media. So I think having this, this well-defined employee communications process in every channel uh, that is necessary for your employees, being where they are uh, and, and, and when they are, um, it, it, it's absolutely essential to uh, brand health. So where I wanted to go with this is, uh, so we're talking moving towards rapid response, real time. And I'm not saying real time marketing, but rapid response. Mm-hmm. And you, you, there's, there's one issue or one thought, which is what I'm going to communicate down and tell the employees. What I'm thinking about is a yammer or a chatter and the ability for an internal communication systems that reflects the type of communications you want going outward. Oh yeah. And, and well, how do you, how do you make that happen? Well, you're talking to Ford employee number one on Yammer. So, uh, <laughs> we, we made it happen at Ford and frankly, it just started out as, as uh, grassroots. It wasn't a top down requirement. You know, we tried stuff out and see how it worked and, Yammer actually picked up uh, quite quickly uh, over a, a short period of time. Um, why? Because people have a desire to be connected with each other. And in this case, it was allowing them to connect with each other, not on, not based on who they knew or departments they worked in, but based on pockets of knowledge, right? Never before could you say, here's a topic. Well, let's say it's... Um, Oh, I don't know, uh, uh, purchasing software, uh-huh. right? Um, and traditionally, you've got your purchasing team, you've got your IT team, and that's pretty much it. Well, if you, if you uh, are able to center the conversation around a topic rather than around specific individuals, right. then you suddenly opened it up to a much wider group with potentially insights that you may not have considered or with... Uh, you know, knowledge of new technology or uh, new processes that uh, a tried and true team would not have seen. And again, that that rise in uh, in the use of Yammer, at least at the enterprise level at Ford, was concurrent with the stuff that was going on externally. So uh-huh. you've got the employees watching the success publicly of the Fiesta movement. And then all of a sudden you realize, wow, we've got influencers of our own inside the company 
uh, in their own right. And, you know, that kind of parallel understanding and parallel use was absolutely, I think, was absolutely critical in uh, the success in adapting it. Right. So when you go into a company and you're, they, you know, so I, need a, I need to have a strong digital marketing, social media, to what extent are you looking at two things? What, to what extent are you looking at the, the vibrancy, the vitality of their enterprise social network? Is that, is that something that's a part of your sort of mantra? And then secondly, all right, so let's say they have it, they have a chatter, they have a Yammer, but how do you, you know, help them to get it to happen? Is there, I mean, what are the keys to success for a vibrant in enterprise social network? Well, we haven't had any, um, any kind of uh, project work like that at this point. Usually it's very externally focused right. um, and, and very transactionally focused mm -hmm. as well. Um, but if I did... You know, I think, again, the the analysis would come from where where is the mandate coming from within the organization? Is it a grassroots kind of ground up thing? Is it a a company wide dictum that uh, you know has been handed down? Is it integrated into HR? You know, I think that's one of the most overlooked areas, quite frankly, mm. um, because. You know, you can you can discuss the tools till the cows come home. Yeah. And 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 look, Facebook just earlier this week announced Facebook at work. Right. Which is basically like Facebook, uh, Yammer for Facebook. Are you a believer? Uh, I'll see. Yeah. I, you know, uh, there there's so many different tools to use. That's for sure. And everybody's got their own their, their own preferences. Um, bottom line is, I don't care about the tools. I care about the behavior and the culture. Right. So if there is a culture of transparency, of knowledge sharing, of uh, collaboration that is required, mm. then it's got to come from the leadership and it's got to be built into employee training and employee onboarding from day one so people really understand. And in my experience, it's not, it's not the younger generation and, and it's not the, uh, the executives that I'm concerned about. It's the middle managers. It's the people that have been at their jobs for 10, 15, maybe 25 years who don't really see any need for this and are completely fine going the way they've been going. And you know, I don't know if there's a way to overcome that or if we just have to wait them out. Yeah, because if you're, in, if you're dealing with a corporate culture that's not into that, then, then there's a whole other type of problem that's underneath that won't make no matter what your great idea is your execution the issue is it will break down internally yeah exactly so i'm um we the new world uh with at shift and uh, the reality of uh the digital marketing challenges that we have today i mean it's no longer about if it's it's more about a lot more about at least for most of the bigger companies about what and how where are you with, um, let's say, the social media options and the, the need to pay to play? It's there's you know we now build these communities. We have millions of fans, but the the organic the algorithm is taking us down its road to pay for everything. How how are you exploring that? Where where do you think the opportunities lie for brands today? Well, that's interesting. You know, I I'll go back partially to what I talked about earlier, and that is the human need for storytellers. We, we still 
need that. And I think that's the kind of content that doesn't need a lot of help from a, from a paid perspective. If you've got something that's really worthy, that's interesting to people, that provides value, mm -hmm. then either A, it's going to spread. If, if, it's, if it's a broad enough message, if it's a broad enough uh, applicable story, it's going to spread to the greatest number of people and certainly people that care about it. If it's a niche message, then it's only a matter of getting in front of a certain number of people. You don't need mass reach for that. You know, we've had the promise of social for so many years of personal relationships and, and niche communities. And yet people keep chasing numbers. They keep chasing fans and followers mm. and, um, you know, these, these inflated um, uh, reach metrics mm. that don't really tell you much, yeah. right? So if you've, got, if you've got something that's worthy of, of, of people's attention, it's going to make its way uh, on its own. Now, I recognize that it's not a perfect system either and that there's a lot of uh, – there's just a cacophony of content out mm -hmm. there. And paid, especially if you're doing it well with what the, you know, the platforms allow you to use, you know, the targeting on Facebook I think is fantastic. Mm -hmm. I was reading the other day that – there's some concern, I think, from Forrester, maybe, that Pinterest uh, still has a ways to go with its advertising because it basically has zero targeting capabilities, hmm. which is astounding in this day and age when you mm -hmm. think about it. Mm -hmm. But if you're able to take a decent piece of content that's already uh, got some organic reach to it that people are responding to and throw some media dollars against that, because it's already been proven to have been effective, it's going to be even more effective when you get it in front of the right people um, and guarantee that they see it. Mm. So that's, to me, that's a way that in, in the digital and social world where um, paid is a, I don't want to call it a necessary evil, but it's absolutely critical for the success of any brand. And you were mentioning Pinterest. I was reading an article about the, the fact that um, the, so the, 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 the analytics are not good on the Pinterest side, but the, there seems to be a lot more success of reaching out and using your money to garner, wow, you know, bring in Pinterest influencers mm -hmm. to have them pin your stuff as opposed to try yeah. to get it the other way around. Uh, I, I would agree. You know, again, it's, it's a matter of, uh, getting into networks and spaces and communities where you might not otherwise be. And sometimes more, more frequently, uh, lately, these influencers will cost you. you know, there is a paid component to influencer marketing in some cases. And I think paying an influencer to come in and take part in a program or, you know, however you, you run it, may actually be a more efficient use of media dollars than doing a broad, you know, kind of ad yeah, uh, pay, uh, payment yeah. against the network where you may be lucky to get a 0.1% engagement rate. Exactly. So, um, Scott, I'm sure you're, you're uh, agnostic to all uh, platforms, uh, or I guess you are, but if you had to, do you uh, have any specific influencer type programs that you like, you recommend when you're out with your clients? Well, it depends on what they're trying to accomplish. Um, you know, right now, one of our clients is the Hawaii Visitor and Convention Bureau, which is not... You're just trying to, get, a, get, trying to get in with Obama. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, could be a good one. Um, they are doing a lot of stuff about just the rebranding of Hawaii. You know, they, they're, they're, uh, I think the, uh, the uh, campaign slogan is let Hawaii happen. That's also the hashtag. <laughs> and they want to be able to tell the story visually. Well, as you can imagine, they've got lots of resources um, to, at their disposal. I mean, they've got some of the most beautiful landscape in the world. And yet we've elected to reach out to Instagram influencers, which is, it's a thing. You know, and these are folks that have hundreds of thousands, if not in some cases over a million followers who love beautiful imagery. Mm -hmm. And so much can be told with that single image. And it's about getting into their networks rather than focusing on simply building a Hawaii Instagram account up right. to X number of followers. Yeah, and images are so strong. So in terms of storytelling. So, uh, Scott, I we will draw it to a close because I don't want to abuse and I really appreciate I'm so excited to have you on the show. What would be the favorite way for you to people to, to go and find out what you're up against and up to? Well, uh, you can find Shift Communications at shiftcom, with two M's, mm -hmm. dot com. Mm -hmm. um, you can find me at scottmonte.com. And as Scott Monty on virtually any social network you happen upon. Beautiful. I will put all that into the glorious show notes, Scott. So I know that uh, Shift is uh, more of a North American-based area, but gosh, love to you know have find find ways to and excuses to have you over here in London or in Paris. So that's that'll be. Over. I I have no objection to that whatsoever, mentor. And we're always looking to expand our international partners, as we do have uh, occasion to deal with global companies and. You know, while we can't do it all ourselves, we do have a strong network of strategic partners in various countries. So uh, if anyone's listening that actually has ideas, wants to make a connection with Shift, uh, certainly let me know. Beautiful. Scott, have a lovely day. Have a good great weekend and uh, stay in touch. All right. Thanks, Mentor. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Mentor Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter, at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you in your lack of self-security Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form As long as you would feel warm Wrapped in canvas Hold me tightly, slowly 
make colors blend and look ugly in the end. But they're pretty in their own disgusting values. We'd hang our portraits in the hallways, make our house guests cringe. Oh, I wouldn't care. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.